Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, thanks very much, Carl and Julia. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Dom Chiu in for Scott Wapner today. Front and center this hour. It's the debt downgrade and what it means for your money. Our investment committee is standing by to break down the fallout. Plus, we have some major moves to highlight from one specific committee member. Joining us for the hour, Bryn Talkington, Joe Terranova, Jason Snipe, and Steve Weiss rounds out the lineup. Let's get a check on the markets right now. We are down decidedly. You can see there the Dow Industrial is down about 250 points. The S&P down by just around 60, and the Nasdaq Composite really pacing the decline right now, down almost 2.5%, roughly a 328-point drop. Uh, this is a market that we haven't seen in a while, fellas, and Bryn. Uh, Bryn, maybe we'll start, start with you on just what it tells you about whether or not this is the beginning of something greater or if this is just the pullback to kind of cool off the jets for the time being. I think right now it's we can just say this is a pullback. I mean, all the technicals were saying we were very overbought, which we had also been in July. And so I think that August, as you guys have talked about, you know, all week has not been a good month, um, typically for stocks. So I just think this is a, a breather. Um, I definitely want to say, you know, talking about the debt ground downgrade. I mean, thank you, Fitch. Thank you. Finally, someone says what needed to be said is that, you know, Dom, in 2021, interest payments were about a third of what we pay on Social Security, which is around $1.2 trillion. And as we know today, interest payments on the debt are at a trillion dollars and growing. And I think what's been what needs to be said, you know, and it has a, although it hasn't reflected the market today, is that a lot of this inflationary pressure, the Fed will not say any of it has to do with government spending. But I think we all know it has. And so I think this should be a wake up call for politicians on both sides to stop the spending, because although we are the reserve currency, this absolutely will slow growth. We cannot have the number one payment going to interest on debt. And so I think this is something for the Treasury, the Fed and politicians to to take note, even though it really hasn't affected the market so far like it had in 2011. So, Steve, I mean, speaking of 2011, I, I mean, that's what everyone kind of harkens back to. Right. And this yep. is nowhere near not even close to as chaotic yep. or as market moving as we thought it would be. I had one public company CFO tell me, Fitch, I mean, really, are they a little late to the game? Other traders saying, you know what, I think if everybody kind of knew what they were saying already. So what what is the fallout or if there is any fallout, is this the real reason why we're seeing the markets down the way that they are today? I th- look, Joe and I talked about this Monday. Mark was clearly overbought. We knew that. Eyes wide open. Protection was all-time cheap, or not all-time, very, very cheap. And um, you never know what the catalyst is going to be to take that overbought position and start the selling. So this was it. 
The downgrade itself, comparing it to 2011, which is more of like a case of first impression for investors then, now we saw what happened. Market traded down about 7%, and then it rallied back pretty quickly. So I suspect that may be the case here, but for the overbought conditions. But it will rally back at some point. Today's a day where I'm glad I own bonds and not so happy I own equities, because, you know, if you own equities, you're, you're poorer to, than you were the other day, but short term. But Fitch, look, what I think they're doing in some respects is getting in front of the presidential election in 2024. Because either you keep a socialist in the White House who's bad for business, or you put somebody in there who's incompetent and unfit to serve. So let's not let the Twitter or X universe explode. I don't like either one of them. And if Trump does go to jail, which seems increasingly is a real likelihood of that, hopefully, and now Twitterverse will explode. Then you've got Ron DeSantis, who's the most anti-business Republican I think I've ever seen. So if you're looking at governance, if you're looking who's the CEO of the country, all you've got are bad choices. You've got the fringe socialist on the left, and you've got the fringe, you know, conservatives on the right. When Marjorie Taylor Greene is a spokesperson for your party, then you've got to say, where else can I put my money? So I think that's what Fitch is getting in front of. So we know what the issues are. I know you're dying to say something. I am. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, I say this because even with the downgrade, we're seeing interest rates move higher. Right. No doubt. We've seen the highs that we've seen since the fall of last year. Yeah. Savings account rates are going higher. Yep. It doesn't seem like whatever is happening right now means that there is any fear that America is going down a fiery pit it's of despair. It's not going to. It's not yes. going to because where else are you going to go? We're the deepest, most liquid market. And whether our credit rating is double A or whether it's an A, it just doesn't matter. The U.S. is always going to be the default bond market. Are you going to go to China? Are you going to go to Europe? They've got their own set of issues, right? Their own imbalances. Are you going to go to Japan? You know, so no, the only place you're coming is the U.S. So Fitch wants to downgrade it. They want to put their name in headlines. That's fine. I don't think it's a delayed reaction to what S&P did 12 years ago. How much of this, Jason, is the perking up, if you will, of that inflationary threat that we've been dealing with over the last year and a half or so? We're seeing fuel prices on the rise. I know this personally because anyone who drives right. knows that fuel prices are going higher. The fear is that food prices maybe start to creep up higher on the heels of that. And then all of a sudden we see a return to lumber prices and raw materials goods, and then maybe even labor going higher at that point. So how much of this is Fitch and how much of it is maybe in your mind the idea that inflation is not yet tamed just yet? Yeah, and I think, I think clearly that's why the Fed is, is, is talking, is jawboning that the way that they have been. And obviously they made a quarter point hike decision uh, last week. I think Bryn makes a great point on just, just the national debt, $33 trillion in debt. And the interest payments are a concern going forward. And if that is the largest payment, that, that is a, that's a much bigger issue, right? Um, when I, as it relates to inflation, I think about the high, water, high water marks coming off the, off the boiler of June and, and the, the, the traction or journey from three to two and potentially, to your point, Dom, prices starting to go up some. We're seeing it in oil prices. Obviously, oil really was pricing in a recession early. We're seeing, obviously, China start to come back online and oil prices starting to pick back, creep back up. Um, so I do think there's definitely some concern. I think the Fed is obviously closer to done. There might be a hike here and there. 
Um, but there's been a lot of liquidity in the market. I mean, the downgrade here, I mean, there's been a lot of fiscal spending over the years, right? And that's what's in the market right now. So it's going to take some time. And I think that's where the concern is. Is, Joe, this is the kind of environment right now, vis-a-vis the Fitch downgrade, vis-a-vis the perceived threat that inflation might still present to the markets, vis-a-vis all of the overextendedness and overboughtness of the market right now, is it in any way, shape, or form, though, a top to the market? Or is this just something where we need to let things relax a little bit before the constructive part of what has been a very strong bull market continues to the upside? That's a great question. I'm glad I got to go uh, bat clean up here yeah, you because, <laughs> because I got to hear everyone's excellent thoughts. And, and Bryn, is, Bryn is so right. Uh, debt as a percentage of GDP is just going to explode in the next several years. Stephen's right in what he's saying. Look, if none of the above was on the presidential election ballot, none of the above would win. We understand all of that. Um, every so often, the market needs to shake the hand of the moving averages. And the distance between price and the moving averages was so significant in the last week. The 200-day moving average was 11% away. And that's really what's going on right now. This was the cause. This was the excuse for price to shake the hand of the moving averages, which I think at some point in the next 45 days, it ultimately will do. Um, This is not something to be dismissed because the reaction in the Treasury market is different than 2011. If you remember in 2011, yields actually fell because Treasuries were viewed as a safe haven. This is the worst possible scenario because equities are going down and the value of your bonds are going down as well. So this, this, is, this is not a good scenario. It also reintroduced conceptually this conversation about competition for equities. We were having that competition for equities conversation significantly in the first quarter. Now that conversation's back once again. And then just kind of underneath the surface in the market, it raises a little bit of concern for me for regional banking balance sheet stress once again. And I think that's something that we have to watch if yields, especially on the long end of the curve, are going to continue to rise. It's almost like we've forgotten about that. That was one of the proximate causes right. of the regional banking crisis, the yields going higher, especially on longer term debt. I just before you steep, yeah. I just want to point out that right now the Nasdaq is off 360 points or thereabouts. That represents session lows. We are now down two and a half percent, as you can see there. The S&P 500 is down 64 handles. 4512 is your level down nearly one and a half percent. The Dow Industrial is down 238 points, 35,391. So again, the S&P and the Nasdaq hitting session lows right now. Just Steve wanted to point it out before. I know that you want to jump in on this. Yeah. So so here's what I'd say. And what's most troubling to me is that a uptrending market, so a continuing or maybe accelerating bull market, inflation being under control, the Fed pausing has now become consensus right? That's the base case. So now you've got things that could actually go wrong because nobody is really hanging out there and saying, I'm bearish, I'm bearish, I'm bearish, right? I put more money to work in the market on a bottoms up basis, not because I thought things were all, the, all clear was there because I found cheap stocks like United Health, like Humana, which we'll talk about. So now that that's the base case, where's the stress point? Where's the point of surprise? And that will be if the inflation numbers that we get next week are hotter. 
if oil prices start to feed into the market, right? If higher auto prices start to feed into the market, reverse what we're seeing in used car prices and other commodities from the shipments, what Russia's doing to Ukraine with grain. So those are the stress points. We're not going to see them immediately, in my view. You'll see inflation come down a little bit, but maybe that's what the Fed focuses on at Jackson Hole. Okay. So in the midst of all of that macro picture we've just laid out, we've got committee moves and a notable one here. Joe, you just rebalanced the Joe T ETF, 48 buys, 48 sells. Can you tell us about it? I, 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 it, it we, we talked about the NASDAQ 100 rebal. This might have been just a hair below that in terms of significance and market. <laughs> no, it, it, it certainly is uh, significant. And I'm going to answer your initial question about whether this is a peak in the market or not, just in terms of what the, stra- what, the person- what the personality of the strategy is today, because I think that's what's important. First of all, the strategy continues to evolve. There's been 11 quarterly rebalancing since the November 2020 inception. This was the largest at 48. The average is generally somewhere around 34. Let's remember, okay, I understand, I say this all the time, I'm on CNBC, so everyone measures me versus every index in the world including the S&P 500. And year to date, the strategy is underperforming the S&P. Why? We're equally weighted. And from February 1st until the end of April, we were not in mega caps. However, this is a momentum strategy. And there's billions of dollars in products that track momentum. And the initial goal of this product was to improve upon momentum. And since inception, we have without question done that. So what does this do? This takes the shape of what the market personality is now. And I think what's important to understand is the sector ownership, because at the end of January, this was very diversified. This was healthcare, financials, consumer discretionary technology, all somewhere with an allocation in the mid-teens. And then slowly, at the end of April, we began to significantly increase, thankfully, the allocation to technology, reduce the allocation to financials. In this current rebalance, there has been a dramatic change away from healthcare. Now, I know on a day like today, okay, healthcare is something that you want, but the healthcare weighting went from 18% all the way down to 7% in this most recent rebalance, and the consumer discretionary weighting rises significantly. So I'm going to answer your question now because the overweights are industrials, consumer discretionary, and energy. The technology weighting is now up to 23%. What does that tell me? That tells me no. There's no way that this is a peak for the market, that what we are experiencing, what we will experience over the next 30 to 45 days is nothing that more than a correction, and we finish the year strong. Why? Because the personality, the shape of this strategy is telling you exactly where momentum's going, and momentum is going to more of a offensive risk-on approach to equities. And what's interesting about that, and I'm going to dwell on this for just a second, because if you go back, say, the last 20, 30, 40 years, the conventional wisdom has always been tech and financials lead the bull market, whatever it is. Financials have been kind of weirdly kind of cast aside given the, the, the wake of the financial crisis and what they've done and everything else. But now you could say it's tech consumer discretionary and communication services. That's where the mega cap momentum trade is. On that note, there was a notable sell that you made that was mega cap related in technology. I know technically it's, you know, consumer discretionary slash communication services slash whatever, but I want to talk about 
Netflix. You're out of it. Why? The strategy is out of Netflix. And, and let me be clear for people that might say, okay, you know, you're, you're selling Netflix, which has very strong momentum right now at 427, up significantly. Strategy's done a good job in terms of positioning around Netflix. In April of 2021, it went out of Netflix at 513. It returned in the previous quarter, last April 28th, at 329. The strategy did not remove Netflix from the portfolio based on momentum. What the strategy has done is it's utilized the additive factor of quality and said, let's look at what's going on on the balance sheet and also let's look at what's going on in the revenue growth. And it's very clear, the revenue growth for Netflix is in decline. Over the last three years, it's up 8%. What's it down to last quarter, 2.7? And over the last four quarters, 3.7. So given that signal, we're gonna exit because we value, okay, the balance sheet, the revenue growth, just as much as we value what price is doing. Equally factored and everything else. Correct. I want Okay, one other thing to point out. You said that you are getting more of that kind of mega cap exposure with this rebound. Two notable additions, mm -hmm. and that is in communication services with Alphabet, parent company of Google, Correct. and also electric vehicles with Tesla. Take us through the rationale or the thinking there. So it's obvious the momentum is, is positive. It's, it's suggesting to go in, but there is exactly where the opposite effect of what happened with Netflix where revenue growth is incurring. So in the case of Alphabet, Alphabet's revenue growth jumped in the last quarter 7.6%. That's above the one year at 2.9%. And Tesla jumps at 47%. That's above the one year at 24%. So the revenue growth for Tesla and Alphabet are actually breaking the downtrend of the last year and showing signs of a trough and a recovery. How do you account okay. the margins, though, at Tesla in terms of momentum? Speaking of Tesla, I want to I want to go in on this because it's a name that you just bought. Bryn, you're, you're there with us. You also own Tesla. Is there a reason why you want to keep owning it? add to it or trim the position given the run that we've seen in certain parts of that stock during the course of this year? Sure. So I think I've talked a bunch about, I bought it originally during the Twitter nonsense around 120 and I sold calls and I've continued to average up actually. So half my positions in calls, um, which make it, make it called away by the way, if, if by September 15, the stock isn't back at 200, my other half will automatically get called away. So that's the way I'm playing it. I have a long-term core position, and then I buy the stock and sell calls. There's so much volatility on the stock. It continues to be, from an options perspective, one of the most active options companies out there. And so I think, for me, a really good way to play it is take advantage of that volatility and sell those calls. I mean, you know, Steve brings up a good point about the margins. The margins definitely have come down. Elon's been very clear. He's trying to get volume right now over price. He's also been very clear that ultimately self-driving is the most important thing to turn that switch on. I think that's going to take longer than, than he anticipates. And so I do think there's going to be volatility in the name. And so that's why... I have my core position, but I think selling calls, you can collect a really fat premium for like three months, 10 to 20% out of the money calls. And then you kind of balance and naturally have that position called away if the stock runs up. 
I mean, Steve, it's pretty interesting, right? I mean, volatility is languishing in yep. just about every part of the market, except it was. in certain na- except in certain names. And you could still get paid a pretty decent amount of money to sell options against a position in Tesla. I mean, you were making a point before. You were yeah. going to before I rudely cut you off about. Yeah, yes, you did with a multiple choice question, which is very unusual <laughs> on this show. Yeah. It's usually, what are you doing and why not yeah. laying out ABC? There you, you know? go. I don't think Bryn needed any help in the no, options. No, 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 not all at all. Right. But Bryn executes her strategy consistently and brilliantly. But uh, yeah, I've, I've got a question on the margins on Tesla, and I don't believe it's a big position in Joe T. But. But they are coming down, but it's by design. It's not necessarily, I do think it's from competitive forces. I mean, look at the Tesla car. It hasn't changed since launch, right? New models, same car. You have some incredible options out there that I think are much more attractive looking, that are not as austere internally on the insides. So ultimately, competition does hurt. But I'm just gonna give a commercial here. I'm not the most gratuitous person in the world. And that's never going to change. But the reason I own Joe T, because as you heard him lay out his strategy and the logic for his moves, just very, very disciplined investor. And I just advise anybody who's watching that go through the same questioning of any manager that you hire, any fund that you're in. Ask them their discipline and let them provide to you, you know, the facts on how they've exercised that discipline and most importantly, didn't stray from it. Right. So. Yeah, so I think what's important, what, what Stephen is saying, and, and Stephen was asking me about the margins at Tesla, right? Just, again, going back, a single factor of momentum is insufficient, in my opinion. And, you, Dom, you and I know there's billions of dollars that invest in that single factor. Mm-hmm. I want to study the balance yep. sheet, okay? So margins are not something that are in the rules. We don't prioritize the margin. We prioritize return on equity, debt to equity, and revenue growth over the last three years. And it's interesting because now we basically own all the mega caps except Amazon. And I, we, you led me right to it. And one of the reasons, and the, the main reason that we don't own Amazon, look, if you study Amazon performance-wise, momentum over the right. last year, it's, it underperforms all the other mag, mega caps on a, on a one-year basis. Mm-hmm. It's basically flat or down somewhere around 1% or 2%. But now let's look at the balance sheet and the, the metrics that we follow on quality. It has a negative ROI. The debt mm-hmm. to equity is actually not that strong. So that's why Amazon is not yet in the strategy. It might be at some point. Who knows? It's been there before. It could be there again. But that's where you elevate the importance of fundamentals, quality, and you do that in rules, and you try and improve upon momentum. I, I love it, only because, you know, in, in a former life, I worked for a quant fund company doing multi-factor models, yep. and, and you stay with the strategy. You back test it, you historically simulate it, you take a look at what happens, and then you say, hey, these factors tend to outperform or underperform, and then you meld them together in whatever weighting or equally, whatever you want to do it, and create a model, and you don't deviate from it. Right. I like the fact that you describe the Amazon scenario for not owning it that way. But Jason, whatever methodology you use has Amazon in your portfolio. So it's obviously not the same as Joe's. Why? Why not? Yeah. So for us, as as it relates to Amazon, I think there's a couple of things. One, you know, obviously it's it's up 53% year to date. It's had a great year. The the one year numbers are not phenomenal. And that and that is uh, widely known. Right. Um, 
We look at AWS as the juggernaut, right? And I think what we'll see from AWS is probably 10% growth now. It has been decelerating. The cloud for AWS has been decelerating. I think there's some upside on the digital ad business. I think, I think we'll see some strength there. Um, and I also just think about their consumer base. We'll see what happened with Prime Day. We'll see how that works out. But when I think about this, this kind of AI tailwind and the consumer base that they have, I think Amazon will benefit from that long run. Fundamentals versus quant. You got there's it. Probably, there's probably a meld in there at some point, guys. Yep. All right, robust discussion. We got more coming up here. Still ahead on the show, AMD's been on a high fly and tear this year, but the shares are pulling back, as you can see, in a big way on weaker than expected guidance. How the committee is playing the semiconductor space coming up next. And we're all over the sell-off today. The Nasdaq on pace, by the way, for its worst day of the year if it closes at these current levels right now. Halftime is back in two minutes. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to the Halftime Report. We're watching AMD shares move lower after the chipmaker reported its second straight quarter of declining revenues. Our Christina Partzanevelis joins us here at Post 9 with the details of that report. I mean, I would say, Christina, it was solidly positive earlier on this morning. It was. And then it drifted lower. So let's lower. blame Fitch, right, for, for this uh, little sell-off that we're seeing. But if anyone is going to steal market share away from NVIDIA's AI chip, it's going to be AMD. But that's not going to happen overnight, let alone in the next two quarters. And that is what has short-term investors a little concerned right now. So the company posted a slight earnings beat. Gross margins improved from the previous quarter. PC sales are improving, but they're still down 54% year over year. And then CEO Lisa Su said that she believes data center sales will increase 50% in the second half of this year, driven by the launch of their new uh, MI300 AI chip. But that 50% bump is compared to the first half of the year. Data center sales are still low. They missed in Q2. They're down 11% year over year. And this is where this crucial timing point comes to play for AMD shares. Sue expects it to remain weak in Q3, more specifically data centers. This quarter still calls for a massive second half recovery. So how does that work? If they're heading into the second half week, but she's calling for a 50% uptick, this hockey stick recovery, that implies that so much is riding on Q4 and the perfectly launched uh, timing of their AI chip. So this is interesting, guys, because when we talk about the positivity around AMD, earlier this morning. It was around this notion that the second half of the year recovery, specifically in data centers, as Christina points out, was maybe some of that sentiment behind the pre-market gains that we saw. By the way, two to four percent, and then we're solidly negative now. 
What was also interesting to me was the city call out this morning upgrading AMD to a buy in a bit of a mea culpa because they missed it, right? But in it, they said, we thought that investors would focus more on the AI low margin product side of things, that investors would actually care about valuations in some of these chip stocks. We were wrong, they said. Do valuations still matter, Joe, when it comes to semiconductors? They do, right? They do. I know personally I had made a move that was predicated on a lower valuation for Broadcom. And obviously I'm very glad that I did. But, you know, we'll get into it further. The momentum is so red. There is no more intense momentum from an industry perspective in the market than with semiconductors. What's interesting about this, and, and to Christina's point, and maybe, you know, Jason, I'll bring, the, bring this in with you. We had talked earlier about Joe talking about shaking hands with the moving averages. I looked at it earlier today. I literally talked about it on Squawk on the Street. Yep. The Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF, ticker SMH, is roughly 3% above its 50-day moving average. Yep. All right, because that's where the momentum is. Right. You know how much it is above its 200-day right now. Right. Earlier this morning, it was 25% above yeah. its 200-day moving average. Right. That implies to me red hot. Is this an industry you would be touching with a gap of 25% above your 200-day moving average? Yeah, and I think the, the most important thing when you're looking at you know, uh, moving averages and what's, what's happening is what, what is the forward return look like? And I think when you have extended evaluations like we see in the semiconductor space, it's difficult to have conviction around, I'm buying here, I'm buying right now. Um, obviously, we have exposure there. We, we own Qualcomm, which reports later on this evening, um, and we own NVIDIA, which reports later on this season. You know, very different stories. NVIDIA, tremendous return uh, year to date. Um, you know, Qualcomm, a little bit of a different story. I mean, still underperforming the SMH, it's up around 17%, but the one-year numbers, are, it's down about 11%. So I think um, it's a mixed bag as it relates to a lot of these names, but I think you have to look for value. Bryn, Bryn can I bring you in here? I, I know that AMD is one of those stocks that, that is in your wheelhouse right now from a portfolio perspective. Is AMD one where this pullback is enough to say, hey, you know what, maybe it's on sale enough to where I want to buy it? Well, it's definitely in my in my stable. I mean, if I think about the rock star CEOs in big tech, I think about Jensen, Lisa Sue, and Tim Cook. And so I listened to the call, actually listened to it this morning. I think it's important for investors. I mean, year over year, revenues were down 18%. Margins were down 8 Earnings were down 93%. So they're definitely not scaling to their 2021 type revenue earnings highs. I think in the short term, there's still this frenzy around AI. And when I think, I'm no AI expert, but what I do know is, you know, NVIDIA created CUDA, which is this, you know, library that helps developers develop using, you know, CUDA as an NVIDIA's platform. And you hear this word, these two words, training and inference. Well, if you're using an NVIDIA to train you're gonna then most likely, highly likely use NVIDIA for inference. So I still think NVIDIA has this pole position and you can't get these NVIDIA, you know, the GPUs until I think next year sometime. So it's an AMD's in my stable because I think Lisa is incredible. And so I'll see what happens here. Maybe you get a little bit more weakness, but um, right now NVIDIA to me remains the, the single most direct way in the public markets to play 
earnings, revenue growth, and the shift out of AI. Because I will say also, Dom, the word of the earnings from mega cap tech about their consumers was optimization, which means that they're not spending as much sure. on general enterprise, but they are spending on AI, and that road leads to NVIDIA. All right, Joe, quick last word on AMD before we move on, because we have a lot of chips to cover here. Okay, so AMD was added to the portfolio. Yep. Along with Skyworks Solution, we now own 13 semiconductors. Again, it's it's white hot, it's intense, it's measuring momentum. From an industry's perspective, 10% of the, of the ETF is now in semiconductors, 8% is in oil and gas. And the last point on that, I'll just say this, look, at April, I don't know individually, if I didn't have a rules-based non-discretionary strategy, if I would have said, okay, I want to buy NVIDIA, right? To your point of where that was in terms of the distance. But thankfully, that's what the strategy had the courage to do. And you see the positive result of that owning NVIDIA for the last three months. All right, one more chip stock that's going to be a huge focus, guys, is Qualcomm. It's a big one out there. It reports after the closing bell. Christina, what are we looking for for Qualcomm this afternoon? Qualcomm already warned or gave us two warnings. The first one was about handset weakness. We know it's weak, uh, but they did say they uh, pretty much expect a high single growth just within the first year, so just year over year. But overall, that's one warning sign. They've warned about that. And then the inventory drawdown overall, uh, just across the board. They expect the inventory to continue drawing down for the next few quarters. They said that last quarter, they even called out one specific modem-only customer, which we can only presume means Apple, too, because their relationship is slowly ending. So those are two points. And then two themes that I'm thinking of is China, because so much is contingent on China revenue, and AI. AI, though, for Qualcomm, they can't monetize that just yet because they're working on creating those large language models with Meta on their phones. But that's not something that's going to happen in the several uh, next two quarters. All right, Christina, I know you'll be all over that trade. And by the way, the options market, guys, already pointing to a less volatile than average Mm. report from a stock perspective on Qualcomm, so we'll keep an eye on that. Christina, thank you very much. We'll see you later on this afternoon. Coming up next, guys, healthcare stocks among the biggest laggards so far this year. The committee debates the best way to play it, and Joe's also making some moves in that healthcare sector as well. Halftime is back after this break. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Like down over 2%. I'm Seema Modi here with your CNBC News update at this hour. The gunman who stormed the Tree of Life synagogue in 2018 sentenced to death by a Pittsburgh jury just minutes ago. The, the unanimous decision comes from the same jury who found the shooter guilty on 63 criminal counts in the massacre. The shooter killed 11 people and wounded seven others at the synagogue, the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. Apple is looking to add more live sports to its roster and maybe targeting college football. ESPN reports the commissioner of the Pac-12 conference has presented proposal for media rights to school presidents and chancellors. The Pac-12 is losing three big members with USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten and Colorado to the Big 12. Apple currently has streaming deals with Major League Baseball and an exclusive deal with Major League Soccer. 
Meta introducing its open source AI tool called AudioCraft that will allow users to create music based on text prompts. There are three models that will work for music, sound, compression, and generation. The tool is raising concerns, though, in the music industry over copyright violations as the software replicates patterns from data scraped from the web. Dom, back to you. All right, Seema Modi, thank you very much for the news update. Let's do a checkup on the healthcare trade overall. Joe is scaling back his exposure in that sector overall. So, Joe, you sold United Health, you sold AbbVie, and you sold Eli Lilly. Those have been some pretty hot names as of late. Well, let's let's talk. First of all, uh, United Health and AbbVie are two names that I have owned for quite some time personally. I owned United Health since January of 2022. Um, at 492, out of it at 504, call it and a half. AbbVie, we owned at, uh, I owned it personally at November, since November of 2022 at 145. But listen, the momentum has clearly uh, diminished significantly in the healthcare space, whether it's Moderna, Humana, which I know is rallying today, but overall, J&J, Thermo Fisher, these are names where momentum is lost. Upon inception of the strategy, 22% of the ETF was in healthcare. At the end of April, 18% was in healthcare. Today, that's down to 7.8. The S&P is somewhere around 13. And Dom, it's not just because of momentum. I think Eli Lilly, and if we have a chart that we could show, Eli Lilly was introduced to the portfolio in April of 2022. And you could see where it was at the time, uh, somewhere around 300. The reason for Eli Lilly, which maintains very strong momentum, is because we overlay the quality factor and we say, okay, what's going on with the balance sheet? What's going on with the direction of revenue growth? And the revenue growth is beginning to contract. The revenue growth uh, over the last three years, 8%. Revenue growth over the last year, negative 8%. Last quarter, negative 10%. So while you have a stock that looks great from a momentum perspective, Overlay the quality factor, realize the revenue growth is contracting significant comparative to the three years. Can I just ask about Lilly really quick, Steve, and I'll bring you in for, for yeah. this one here. Don't bring me on Lilly. No, no, no. But just in general, the, the concept right. here, when we're talking about revenue growth over a certain time period, Correct. those are backward looking factors. There are some folks who would say that the opportunity for growth in things like yeah. those diabetic treatments that have weight loss side effects which Lilly is now part of that conversation for, lend you to believe that future expected or forward-looking forecasted growth could be more indicative. And that's the reason why a company like Lilly would have run the way that it has over the course of the last six months. Is that the right way to look at it? I mean, Steve, I don't know. Not on a one-drug basis. Not on a one-drug basis. But if you only looked at revenue growth, you'd never own an earlier-stage biotech stock because they have no growth. It's all in the come. So for Lilly, um, all the co- drug companies need to replenish their pipelines. Look at Pfizer. It's been, it's just been flat forever. It's been down forever, right? And they benefit from vaccine. But you've got to take a look at the pipeline. And by the way, the obesity drug market is getting very crowded very quickly. So ultimately, generics take over, but you've got to price competitively at some point. So I think that's the issue with Lilly. So, yes, you've got to look at forecasted earnings, but they're very uncertain in, in life sciences because you've got to know 
if number one, the drugs get approved, you've got to know if they're going to be if there's going to be uptake. You got to know if there's going to be reimbursement by the private payers and by the public payers, right? So you've got all those issues. So it's not as easy as looking at what the upside could be in projected earnings. All right, that's the healthcare conversation. I wish we had more time because we could have gone very deep into that one. All right, coming up on the show, our chart of the day is coming up. Solar stocks pacing for the worst day in the last three months. How to play that solar trade and coming up next on the Halftime Report. Keep it right here. All right, we're back on the half. A very big interview coming up later on today on Power Lunch. Don't miss our own Leslie Picker. Exclusive interview with J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon. I believe it's in Montana, of all places. It's happening live at 2 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Must-watch television. Jamie Dimon and Montana and Leslie Picker. Now to our chart of the day. Solar Edge shares are tumbling after reporting second quarter results. The stock is having its worst day in about a year at this point. Pippa Stevens joins us now with the details behind why the move that bigly to the downside, Pippa? Hey, Dom. Well, SolarEdge is the latest company to warn about weakness in the U.S. solar market. Third quarter, revenue guidance came up short of expectations, sending the stock tumbling. Now, CFO Ronan Fayer telling me, quote, in the U.S., there's a real slowdown. The U.S. market is not growing this year, and I don't see any resolution next year. Now, the picture is better in Europe. Distributors are pulling back on product purchases as they work through excess supply. But it's not a demand side issue like it is in the U.S. residential market. Eighty percent of SolarEdge's revenue comes from outside the U.S., while competitor Enphase is much more U.S. focused. Now, executives say the resi slowdown is thanks to higher rates, which increases the payback period for solar system. But utility scale projects are less sensitive, and so demand is still robust in those markets. Names like First Solar, Shoals, and Next Tracker all higher DOM over the last three months. Back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Pippa Stevens. Joe, you just sold a renewable energy name out of the Joe T portfolio. Take us through why. Very happy to see this one go. This was clearly in the portfolio based on incredibly strong momentum at the end of 2022. Um, That momentum has deteriorated significantly. This is the worst performing technology name in the entire sector for the S&P. And by the way, it's Enphase Energy for those yes. people who are... Enphase, yes, Enphase, yes. I yeah, thought, yeah. I thought yeah, you had yeah. given that already. Yep. Yes, Enphase Energy. So, you know, the, 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 the return on equity is strong, uh, the revenue growth is strong, but the momentum is, is horrific, and the rules say at that point, exit. All right, guys. Coming up on the show, we got Mike Santoli joining us with his midday word. Halftime is back right after this. All right, welcome back to the Halftime Report. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us with this customary midday word. What stood out? I mean, you've been watching it all morning. Yeah. I don't think it's really been one where it's been fireworks to the downside just because of Fitch. Right. Is this just the pause that refreshes? I was going to say what stands out is that it seems like the first one-day proper shakeout, but just a shakeout at this point. I mean, one way to look at that is uh, the low for the day so far on the S&P is the 20-day average, right? That's like one of those things, very, very short-term, in good uptrends. That's going to hold. We don't know if it's going to hold there. I do think clearly, as, as all of us have been discussing, Plenty of things lined up coming into August that said maybe it's enough for now on the upside, whether it's the seasonal stuff, the fact that you had a lot of bears capitulating, the fact that we got a GDP now number yesterday at 3.9, everyone finally celebrating a stronger economy than anticipated. And then we get the, the Fitch thing. You, may, you know, it's an, it's an opportunity and an occasion to rethink 
where we are. But but in itself, to me, it's not even behind the yield. M- Mike, before we let you go, th- there have been so many macro things that you just cited right there. We're still in the midst of an yeah. earnings season full of microeconomic catalysts. It's been generally good. Yeah. Is it enough, though, to keep things going? The, the reports in aggregate have been generally good. The reactions to individual surprises have been kind of meh. Like, it hasn't necessarily been a real embrace of the numbers. And I think it just tells you what the setup was coming into uh, the earnings season. So maybe what we do now is reload some of the skepticism and, and see if uh, we can burn it off with Apple and Amazon tomorrow. But you got some good 10, 8% corrections in the likes of Microsoft at this point, NVIDIA, CRM. So some of the some of the froth is being pulled out. We can put AMD in that picture yeah. as well. All right, Mike Santoli, thank you very much. We'll see you later on this afternoon. The committee is getting ready to, by the way, grade your trade. So keep it right here. Halftime is back after this. Time for Grade My Trade. Now, this first one is for Bryn. So, Bryn, this is Jorge in Pennsylvania, who bought a name you know. It's Devon Energy, $54.77, and then added more to it at $52.85. It's currently $49.45. Bryn, this has been a tough one. Well, it's, I mean, it depends. It, it's been a little bit tough, a little bit tough for Jorge. But over the last couple of years, the stock has the stock has crushed it. So here's what you do now. You know, they came out with earnings and understand Devin is sensitive to the price of oil. Obviously, oil was down versus where it was last year. And so that fixed plus variable dividend distribution has come down. And I think that's one of the reasons for the weakness since post earnings. But listen, Devin is the one that created the fixed plus variable distribution that all their competitors are using. They have a great management team. Their production was all-time high. They continue to pay down debt, share repurchases, and getting that free cash flow yield and paying out those distributions is priority number one for the C-suite. So I think it's a great name. I'm gonna continue to own it. I'll probably sell, start to sell calls against it because I do think there's resistance around, around this level right here, and then hold it long-term because I think it's a great company. All right, so that's Devin Trade for Bryn. Jason Snipe, John in Connecticut, wants to know your take on Procter & Gamble. Yeah, so Procter, you know, it's, it's roughly around up 4% year-to-date. Uh, the valuation on the, on the stock, look, trading at 24 times, a little rich over its three-year average. Uh, but I like, I like the quarter. Organic sales were up 8%. Uh, the dividend yield is about 2.4%. And, you know, I always follow the dollar with this stock because 55% of their revenue is overseas. So it's a little bit of uptick in the dollar recently, um, but it has been generally weak. So I like this trade. All right. Devin and Procter & Gamble, thanks very much, guys. Final trades are coming up next. Keep it right here. We'll be right back after this break. All right. Welcome back, guys. Time for final trades. Bryn Talkington, you're up first. Going to stick with energy. ConocoPhillips, they report earnings tomorrow, so wait. Stock has a 4.5% yield. It's at 115. You could actually sell the November 125s around $3.26, which annualizes around a 7% call premium, plus the 4.5% yield. It's a good total return, and I like the space for the rest of the year. All right, Stephen Weiss. Yes, Alibaba. Look, stocks today on the Chinese new regulations limiting 
children viewing between the hours of 10 a.m. 6 uh, 10 p.m. 6 a.m. Who cares? It's an opportunity to buy. Jason Snipe. Northrop Grumman. Unfortunately, geopolitical issues are still a major problem. Stocks down 18 percent. I'd buy it here. And Joe Terranova. Our energy exposure went up to 11 and a half percent. Schlumberger is the name we added. Very first time we've owned it. Thanks very much, everybody in the committee. We'll see you guys tomorrow. The Exchange with Kelly Evans comes up next. I usually sit next to her, but now I'm not today, guys. Back over to you, Kelly. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 